Amen. Take your Bibles. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. Last sermon. Great book. Been in it a long time. This is God's Word, Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, you have spoken to us in the reading of your word. Would you please speak in its preaching? Give us hearts that are ready to hear. For Christ's sake, amen. So what do we do now? What do you do with yourself? You may actually have kind of had experiences where you feel that. Uh, when I was in school, I felt at the end of every kind of end of semester, when I was in college or grad school, the end of every school year where you, you kind of finish your, your big push to make it to the end of the year, you graduate or whatever it is and go, what am I supposed to do with myself now? And 13 weeks of no school. What am I supposed to do? Everything's different. It was even worse graduating from college. My job didn't start yet. I'm like, what am I supposed to do with myself? What do I know? I think as an adult, you probably get that experience a little bit less frequently, uh, probably because we have so many things to do that our to-do list is never done, and so instead we just kind of go, ah, it's just the next thing that we're constantly running to. We have one of these moments kind of in Scripture right now that I think is just absolutely marvelous, where if you're kind of reading through the New Testament start to finish, and you're being honest about thinking about it, and kind of working through what emotions the men and women in the text might have felt, this is one of those kind of great, like, what are we supposed to do moments? Like, what's going on? The guy that they've been following for three years, they've devoted their lives to listening to him. They've devoted their lives to walking with him. They've watched him do miracle after miracle. He even told them that he was going to go to Jerusalem and they were going, he was going to die and he was going to stay dead for roughly three days. On the third day, he'd be raised. And all along, they've believed him, but they've had kind of these niggling doubts in the back of their mind to say, we know Jesus is the real thing. We know he is God. We know he is man. We don't fully understand all of what that means, but we know, but still. At this point, we in the book, we've gotten to the fact that he walked into Jerusalem and did exactly what he said he was going to do. He walked in and died. Of course, the disciples have, you know, mild panic attack, freak out. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And they do poorly. 
that Jesus doesn't stay dead. Which is an amazing thing, and one of those realities that if you've been in the church for a while, like it, it's so often spoken about that we forget the significance of it. That Jesus did not stay dead. In fact, he's not dead now. He's alive in heaven, physically seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is no less alive now than when he was at the beginning of the book of Matthew. No less alive now than when he was in the womb of Mary and when he was on the cross before he died. He is alive. And again, that's so commonly talked about in the church that sometimes I think we forget the significance of it. But the real point that you get to at this point in the book of Matthew is that if Jesus is who he says he is, what do we do now? If he is the Son of God, if he is the Lord of life, if he has conquered death, if nothing can defeat him, if even the devil himself is not strong enough to beat him, what do we do with that fact? What is the church supposed to do and supposed to be? Now, that's a question that deserves some serious thought in what we're really going to contemplate today. What is the church supposed to do and supposed to be? And honestly, there are so many options to answer that question. There's so many options in America to answer that question. There are so many options within 500 yards of where I'm standing to answer that question. I mean, you think about it, in very trendy right now, there's a lot of different things that the church could be about. It could be a a social club. It could be well-designed, well-crafted, well-branded, well-marketed, well-executed to get people to be friends. And you know what? Friendship is a good thing. The Bible says so. So is that what the church is supposed to be? Is it it supposed to be all about friendship? I mean, if it is, our activities, our calendar need to reflect that. If we're supposed to be just about friendship and hanging out together, that's what we need to plan our entire schedule around. There's a movement inside some churches that say, well, we want to be the center of cultural creation. We want to be a place that that alters the landscape of the culture. That if you want to interact with good culture, if you want to interact with, with godly culture, this would be the place to do that. Okay. If you want to be a countercultural place, you want to do your own thing. You need, your, your budget needs to reflect that as a church. Your calendar needs to reflect that. Your money needs to go to creating culture. It needs to go to the arts. There are some churches that are busy with political activism where instead of 
doing other things. Their pulpit has become a vehicle for politics. This is how you need to vote. This is why these men and women are bad in politics. This is why these men and women in politics are good. We now have pulpits that have become the centers of justice proclamation or climate activism, activism for the fringe segments of American culture or society. There are so many choices. And all of those are really interesting. I'm not going to lie. They're really interesting. I mean, you go through Charlotte and look at all the different churches and look at their web pages. It's really interesting. The interesting thing is that in all of those, though, I haven't answered the most important question, which is what does the Bible say? What does God himself say his church is supposed to be about? What does God himself say his church is supposed to be doing? Well, Matthew 28 tells us. In fact, actually, I'm going to just shamelessly give a plug for the next series of sermons. Uh, I, I tend to take a couple of weeks in between book studies to do um, topical, not really, it's still expository, but on things that are pertinent to us uh, in a specific fashion. The next couple of weeks, I'm going to be preaching on how this church does ministry. Uh, by God's providence and mercy, we've grown tremendously through COVID. We've um, built this building and filled seats, and that's his kindness to us. As a result, we have a lot of folks that don't know why we do what we do and how we do what we do. And this is going to be the first sermon in a series that's going to be working through explaining some of that. What does the Bible say about what the church should be? Well, I think Matthew 28 is the best and clearest answer in this regard, though certainly not the only answer. Uh, Jesus has been raised from the dead, raised himself from the dead. He's told his disciples to go ahead to Galilee where he will meet with them. He ends up shortcutting that, meets with them in Jerusalem first. But then here in Matthew verse 16, we have in Galilee, he's interacting, but there's a very specific note that Matthew makes. This is not the collection of all of the Christians in the world at the time. This is not the collection of faithful women who have been the heroes of the faith, who stayed with him when he was dying, who were there when he was buried. No, what's happening in the Great Commission, what's happening in verse 16 through the end of the chapter, is explicitly geared to the eleven disciples, to the leadership of the church. This is what the church is supposed to be about. Now, that's going to have applications for everybody individually, and we're going to get to those. But this is for the capital C church. This is what Christ Ridge is supposed to be about. This is what Fellowship Presbytery, this is the body of churches in our county and the surrounding counties are to be about. This is what the Presbyterian Church in America, our denomination, is supposed to be about. And I love the aside that's there included in verse 17. It's so heartwarming. They, they see Jesus and even now, They worship him. They've already met with him before this, but still wrestling with doubt. How does a dead man stay not dead? It's a hard thing. The resurrected Lord. But in verse 18, Jesus gives them their marching orders. 
This is what the church is supposed to be. This is what the church is supposed to do. And it's one of those really, actually, really hard passages to preach because you've all read it 78,000 times. But we're still going to try. What does Jesus give them? Well, he gives them the command that we know in verse 19 and 20, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. That's the, the, the imperative that's given us the command. And all those things are really exciting. We get excited about all of them. Some of us, certain ones more than others. But the interesting thing, and I am, I'm going to have to be a little bit of a nerd here, is that not all of the terms in verses 19 and 20 are on equal standing. In fact, actually, you probably figure this out, English is a rather weak language. We don't do a good job in English of, of, of conveying meaning very well, which is why it's so difficult to learn and why we don't follow our own rules. But hidden behind the English and the Greek, there's a priority system that's built into the passage. The verbs here are all in different kind of uh, structures to highlight to the reader in the original language the priority system that the church is supposed to have. In fact, if we're going to be technical, this will be the first thing we look at, verses 19 and 20, there's actually only one proper verb in the entire thing. Which in English, that's not true, right? In English, we have go, make disciples, baptize, teach, to observe, and commanded. Interestingly, though, in the Greek, there's only one verb, make disciples. Because interestingly, in the actual original, Jesus is making the abundantly clear point, and you cannot get past it in the original, that the church is to be preoccupied in every form and in every facet with making disciples. This is an active, imperative verb. It's in the plural. You are supposed to be, capital C, church. You are supposed to be making disciples. Interestingly, the, the, the church's big command. It's not culture. It's not politics. It's not policies. It's people. The church's big command is people. We've been tasked with being consumed as a body with transforming other humans. Now this is, again, particularly intriguing considering Matthew and how he writes. Matthew, when he uses the word disciple, doesn't tend to mean it in the generic, like a Christian generically. He does it, I think, once, but almost always when he uses disciple, he's meaning specifically the leaders of the church, those that are invested, those that are bought in, those that are contributing, those that are not just kind of fluff sitting on the edges, but those that are the beating heart of the church. Go replicate yourselves in raising up other Christians that are consumed with Christ and are consumed with the church. Go make disciples. 
The interesting thing, again, though, is making disciples is one of those things that it's an idea that we kind of talk about in the church, but if you stop and think about it, you're like, I have no idea what that means. I don't really have a a technical definition for the word disciple, so how am I supposed to make more of them if I don't actually know what they are? Well, at minimum, I think if we stopped and thought about it, we would say, well, it's a person who, who believes in Jesus. Um, okay, I can, I can live with that. But again, as mentioned kind of sarcastically the last couple of weeks, it's, it's generally a good idea to not set the threshold or the bar at a level that the demons themselves can meet. So if we're going to set the idea of a disciple as, as raising up people that believe in Jesus, friends, that's what the demons do. That's what the devil himself does. I mean, he knows more about Jesus than I do. I've had a long time to study him. He doesn't love him. He hates him, despises him. But it's not a lack of knowledge. No, instead, actually, what, what we look at with the idea of a disciple is it's not somebody that knows with their head, but it's somebody that knows with their heart. Someone who has the knowledge of the Scriptures, maybe just a little, maybe not a lot, but understands that Jesus is for them. It's not just that He's God and man. It's not just that He went to the cross to pay for sin. It's not just that He was raised from the dead to conquer sin forever. It's not just that He gives laws on how to live. It's not just that He gives promises of how He will treat people with kindness. It's that He did those things for me. That Christ is mine. It's not dealing with it kind of in the generic, it's not, it's not dealing with Jesus kind of in some kind of vague form out there of some substance or entity or force like Star Wars that I, I know is influencing the world, but I don't really know how. No, he's the Lord of life and he's mine. And I am his. It's one of my favorite illustrations of what Jesus praises throughout the Gospels when he interacts with people, you pay attention to what he values and what he praises. It's really interesting. He praises having children in his presence. Right? That's why we want children in a worship service. Jesus did it, we should. Sometimes they're probably inconvenient. They ran up and sat in his lap. Okay, fair enough. I'm okay with that. He praises people who don't understand who is, he is really entirely, but when he, he says, this is the reality, they say, okay, I believe it. All right, that's wonderful. But some of his highest praise is reserved for people who just sit at his feet and seek to be in his presence, who just want to be with him. Just want to spend time with him. For those of you that are married, you may be able to remember back to when you were engaged. Some of you, as in a previous century, I'm in that list. Previous millennium, really. 
Some of that's a long time ago, but you remember back in that time or when you were first married that there was just a joy to just sit in the same room together. Like, you didn't have to be saying anything. You didn't have to be talking anything. Like, it was just like the highlight of the week to just read in the same place. No words said for an hour. doesn't matter. You're just in the same location because you delight to be in their presence even if nobody's talking. Just to be together. I do find it interesting how easy it is for some of us in marriage to feel that way, still feel that way. But how hard it is for some of us to think that way about Christ. To be eager to just be in His presence, to delight to be in His presence, to, to just want to be with Him. This is the business of the church. The church is all about transforming people, which the session of this church, the leadership of this church is bought into 100%. Our budget reflects it best we can, not perfect, certainly. Our calendar reflects that as best we can, it's not perfect, certainly. Our leadership choices reflect that as best we can, it's not perfect, certainly. We try to have this idea of the church being in the business of transforming people to be with Christ as the dominant idea that touches everything. I'll give you a hint. There's nothing in this church that I'm aware of that doesn't fall in that category. Because while I may not win friends and influence people in the session, if I find that, I will try to execute it. Because if we're busy doing things that aren't building people up, not making disciples, we have no business doing it. No business at all. Because that's what the church is supposed to be about. The only verb, make disciples. Well, interestingly, kind of in a postmodern context, the immediate response that some people are going to have, well, who gives you the right? What gives you the right to tell me how I'm supposed to live? No, I've never said that to me, I'm sure. I know you've thought it in your hearts occasionally. I've thought it in my own heart occasionally. Well, I love that this command to make disciples is kind of nestled within a statement just prior Jesus comes to them, the resurrected Lord, the one who has proven that he is God Almighty by raising himself from the dead, by dying for sin. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And again, the grammatical construction there is highlighting the fact that it's been given to him. It belongs to him. He owns it. Right? The same way this jacket that I'm wearing is given to me. It belongs to me. I own it. It's not yours. You can't come and take it from me and try to walk off with it. That's called theft. You're stealing from me. It belongs to me. It's mine. Interestingly, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, and it belongs to him. He has accomplished it. He has secured it, and it is proven on the cross. It belongs to him. He's allowed to talk about whatever he wants to talk about because he's the king of heaven and earth. What gives us the right to try to make disciples? Well, Jesus does because he is the king and he's told us to. Because it's his church and they're his disciples. 
That's going to be a very important point to think about really how we approach life at Christ Ridge is to understand this is not my church. I get to pastor here and I love it. I've pastored here for a long time. I'm very thankful for that. Brandon gets to pastor here. He's not been here that long yet, but he loves it. He's going to love it even more the longer he's here. It's a wonderful thing. It's not our church. It's not the Sessions Church. Our elders are magnificent. They're wonderful. They shepherd faithfully. I love them so much. They do a great job. But it's not our church. This is Christ's church, and as a result, we have to obey His commands. His command is that we are to be consumed with making disciples. We are to be preoccupied with it. The resurrected Lord has told us to do so, and so we must. Now, how do you make disciples? That is actually a question. I mean, that, that is a real trick. How do, you make, how do you make people change? That's a really hard thing. How do you make new people in this kingdom of God? And interestingly, again, the grammar here, we have one primary verb. It's the only that is active indicative. Make disciples. There are two verbs that are kind of subordinate in just a, a fancy way in Greek. They're called uh, participles, but they're active participles. And what that means is in kind of a Greek construction. They're verbs, but they're half verbs. That's probably the easiest way to say it. So that it's very obvious that they're still important, but they're lesser in authority, or not authority, in, in, in emphasis. Primary verb, make disciples. Two subordinate verbs, baptize and teach. Those are the the subsets. That's how you make disciples. That's how the church does her business. That's how she accomplishes this immense task to make people into the image of Christ more and more. It is through, how we say it here, straight up copying from the confession of faith, the gathering and perfecting of the saints. That's what we do. That's what the church is supposed to be about. It's gathering the people of God together and perfecting them. And that both parts of this are important. The the baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism serves an incredibly important function in the Scriptures. We're going to talk about it further in a couple of weeks. But it's the emphasis of bringing people in, not on their own terms, but bringing them in on God's terms. It's God's kingdom. He brings them in. They're not baptized into your own name. It's not a naming ceremony where we make you, you, and you, you. We're brought into Christ's kingdom, and as a result, we have the name of the triune God placed upon us. We're brought in, us and our children. We belong to Him. This is that emphasis of of meeting people that don't yet know Christ and seeking to evangelize to see if we can uh, see people by the power of the Holy Spirit be brought from death into life. To see people who have hearts that do not know the Lord be changed. And some of you in here, you know this firsthand. You've been evangelized by me, literally. Challenged to bow the knee before the Lord Christ. Challenged to receive the free offer of His salvation. Challenged 
to understand him to be your king and believe, to repent, to have faith, to enter into the kingdom of Christ through his door into his home. Gathering the people of God together, that's your first kind of participle, this active plural participle, but the other there is teaching. The perfecting so that both of these, interestingly, are are functioning together. The first one is you're bringing people in, bringing new people into the church, having babies, bringing new people into the church, gathering them in under the name of the triune God, but then building them up so that we're not just trying to accumulate humans, but that we're trying to do something with them. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Understanding who God is. Understanding what God tells us. Understanding what He explains about the world around us. Understanding what He explains about my life. And then teaching people how to live accordingly so that we would grow in grace and goodness. Now certainly, we're under no pretense. We're not going to be perfect in this life. But we are in the process of being perfected. So that if you're in a good Bible-believing church, you'd be able to look back 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years and say, look, I am not the same person I was. I'm not the same person I was. I've been transformed. I've been renewed. I've been rebuilt. I've been changed. Again, it's the desire of the session here to be obedient to the commands of Christ. And again, have our budget, have our calendar, have our leadership, have our pastors reflect these two commitments, the gathering and the perfecting of the saints. Again, and I'll be up front, there are a lot of churches that want to be a lot of things. I'm not mad at them for that. They can be whatever they want to be. This church, this pastor, wants to be busy making disciples through the gathering and the perfecting of the saints. And if we have activities that are not accomplishing that, friends, hear me now, we should kill those activities. They're not okay. You say, well, that's a bit intense. Do you know me, first off? (laughs) But secondly, some of you don't know this, that's how we've gotten here. This church 15 years ago was an absolute disaster. 18 people, the pastor who'd been excommunicated, crippling debt, and no leaders. And what God has used to bless this church is a commitment to the gathering and perfecting of the saints that is laser-focused on that and that alone. I've been talking with the elders, and we acknowledge by God's mercy, He's blessed us with more people, right? Ideally, our, our elders are in their shepherding groups are supposed to have six to eight families per shepherding group. Right now, our elders are running between 14 and 16 per family. Per group. It's crazy God's blessed us so much. 
And the easy thing is as blessing comes in, as money is given, as people are added for us to lose focus and to start doing things that are good but aren't great. And I'm lovingly setting the tone now. We must not do that. That's how you kill a church. That's how we rewind and go backwards. That's how we have sheep that get to be wounded and sick and starving because the shepherds aren't doing their jobs. We must stay on target. And it begs the question, okay, so if that's what we're supposed to do, and man, that's a bit intense for Michael, this is what we're always supposed to do. I mean, I thought this was the missions passage. I only heard it preached in missions conferences. Well, interesting, that is the fourth verb right here, but it's actually interesting categorically, it's the weakest of them all. The first one is the, the make disciples is an imperative, it's an active imperative. You need to go do this. Gathering and perfecting are participles, they're half verbs, but again, they're uh, active. You need to go do this. That go verb is intriguing, though, because it's a participle, it's a half verb, but it's passive. You're like, what does that mean? It means that grammatically, interestingly, what Jesus is emphasizing here is not so much the you should go. He's emphasizing that these are the things that the church should be doing always, everywhere, all of the time. Please go. Do that. Don't not go. But don't think that this is what you do over there and not here. Don't think that this is what you do out there and not here. No, the emphasis is actually, and probably the better translation is, while you're going everywhere all of the time, always be about making disciples. Never stop making disciples. Never quit making disciples. As a church, don't do anything that's not making disciples. Make disciples there, make disciples here, make disciples there, make disciples everywhere, but make disciples. Be that, please. And don't stop. This in no way undercuts foreign missions. Please, make disciples there. Make disciples in Panama. Make disciples in North Africa. Make disciples in Southeast Asia. Make disciples in England. Make disciples everywhere, please. But make them here. And you think, wow, that's, I mean, he's taking a shot at the leadership. I'm not. Our leaders are fantastic. We're already on board with this. I'm bringing you into a conversation we're already having. But I do want to just a little bit, maybe, step on your toes just a touch. To remind you that the task of making disciples doesn't stop with the leaders. Right? The, the task of making disciples doesn't stop with the pastors. Now, baptizing does. Right? Baptizing does. Brandon and I are the ones, we get to do that here. But teaching doesn't. I mean, we need people in that building all the time teaching our children, don't we? Raising them up so that they understand the truths of the faith way earlier than you did. I don't know, I think I've met an older Christian who's like, ah, you know what, I wish my kids had started on their faith later. No. 
But pushing kind of one step further, the challenge for us is going to be as a church as we continue to grow, which I think God is blessing us with, I fully expect to see that happen, is that we begin to intentionally understand and intentionally put into practice that making disciples doesn't stop with the leadership. Which means there's a couple of just brief applications. Friends, it's going to be very difficult for you to make disciples if you don't know the people in the room. I, don't, I mean, I don't mean to be rude. But it's hard if you don't know the people in the room. Get to know everybody. I mean, you can't disciple them if you don't know them. Two, we've been reworking our flow chart, obviously, in our ministries. You've heard about that from Dwight and from others, but find an opportunity to serve. And I recognize some in the room because of obligations of family or obligations of sickness or things like that, you're not able to serve in the ways that you wish. I'm not mad at that. But again, at minimum, making this place the place that when you walk in, somebody greets you and tries to get you to sit with them every Sunday. Again, some of you, it's been so long since you've changed churches, you don't remember it. It's a really scary thing to walk into a new building sometimes. Some people, it gives them a little bit of nerves, a little bit of heebie-jeebies, and sometimes they'll break out into a cold sweat. Do you know how much easier it makes it to have somebody say, hey, would you like to sit with me? My name's Michael. Bringing in and building up so that we're making disciples together. Because realistically, friends, and and again, this is that kind of pushing just a little bit. I'm not mad, I'm not yelling, but just a little bit. The reality is some of us don't think about making disciples at all. At all. Which is really a great tragedy considering it is the primary mission of the church. You know, think about that. Just pause for a moment and think about that. Think about how out of step that puts you with Jesus' command when he said, this is the mission of the church and it's something that you don't think about ever at all, maybe three times a year. VBS, great. Love VBS. Maybe it might be an opportunity for us to think about how can we make disciples. Make disciples of our children. Make disciples of our friends. You realize that's actually part of your task of having friends is to help make them into gathering and perfecting the saints. Inviting your neighbors. Bringing them in, building them up. Guess what? The primary evangelists in the church don't need to be me and Brandon. It needs to be y'all. And honestly, even as I say this, I know some of you are already kind of balking at it. and like, I don't like this sermon. I like the last one where it was like, yay, Jesus wins. This one makes me uncomfortable. I love how Jesus, I think probably kind of in his infinite wisdom, guesses that's going to be the response for most humans. Of like, really? You want me to do what? You want me to spend the rest of my life making disciples instead of making myself happy? You want me to do what? The last sentence of the book of Matthew. 
Behold, that's intended to be read with that tone of voice. Ladies, I know that's weird for you. I'm sorry. You can't, you can't read it like that when you're reading at home. It's the exclamation in the text is designed to catch your ears. Behold, I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. He hasn't left us. The resurrected Christ is with us. His power is with us. His presence is with us. He has not left. And I remember being younger and beginning to first think these thoughts and thinking, well, it'd just be so much easier to do this if Jesus was still with us. And then immediately being like, oh, ooh, he still is. (laughs) That's inconvenient. I mean, if he was with me, I'd have no problems inviting my friends to church. I have, I have no problems greeting new people. I have no problems encouraging people and asking them how their walk is going and, and encouraging them with the promises of God and giving them hugs when they cry and trying to make their lives better. It would be so much easier if Jesus was with me. Wow. He is. He is with me. And he is with you. And the interesting thing is that Jesus is not stingy with his power, and he is not stingy with his presence. All you have to do is ask and go and work, and he blesses. You see, that's actually the story of the history of this church, and that's why I love to tell it. I'm absolutely, completely honest and open about our dirty laundry. It's almost been a a tremendous gift because in our dirty laundry, we get to be able to say, look, Jesus is with us. He's never left us. He's never forsaken us. And even when this church was at its lowest point, he has been faithful to his promise. Look around. He's kept his promise. He's blessing us even now. Might it be that we as a church could intentionally put on our thinking caps and say, how can I be a part of the gathering and the perfecting of the saints? Because that's what this church is about. Because Jesus told me it should be. And I'm doing it with his power, I'm doing it with his authority, and I'm doing it in his presence. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you that (laughs) even when we're a mess, you're not. We thank you for your faithfulness to this church. And oh God, would you make us faithful to you? That's a really big prayer request because we know our own hearts. Would you send your spirit to shape us for Christ's sake? Amen.